So it may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but I don't typically listen back because that's how I like to listen back to what we record here, because I like to hold myself accountable and not try to backtrack because, oh, I said something that, mm-hmm. oh, now I don't mean or whatever. So, you know, for, to, to keep my mentals straight when it comes to what we talk about on this show, I don't typically listen back. But I did listen back last week to the triloquy, to the final movement when we were getting into Debussy. Mm-hmm. For me, it felt like it ended a little abruptly because I was <laughs> getting my feelings. There were a couple of hard R's in last week's triloquy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I just want to begin this week by, you know, just making sure that my statements and, and, and my ideas were clear. Um, and for folks who, you know, weren't with us last week, just uh, be sure to go back and uh, check out the last movement of, of last week's opus. But if I can make anything clear, this is just what I want to say when it comes to these very, very famous composers who, you know, we unearth certain things about them and and the musical receipts we have to point to their sexism, their racism and all of those things. If, you know, that isn't enough to deplatform those composers for a person in the opinion of a music program or a conductor or whatever, why would they uh, admonish a, a live living person for sexism or racism? And I'm sure that there are all sorts of excuses or things that people can come up with, but e- either way, that is the point I was making. And I hope that that made it to people when it comes to this composer or, or anybody for that matter. Um, I know that you were getting, you know, a little uncomfortable. It was it, it was one of those heated conversations. Do, do you have any, um, you know, final pins to put in it before we before we leave that conversation, at least for now, when it comes to Debussy and should we play him and all of that sort of stuff? I went back and listened to it as well. And um, no, it's it is better left elsewhere but all i can say is that in i know that a few opuses ago i said i was trying to get used to being uncomfortable and that some people wrote and said that wasn't really a good example of me trying to get comfortable with being uncomfortable sure um i think that in the moment i was going where a lot of people go which is by not totally canceling an artist then you are by proxy racist across mm-hmm. the board. Yeah. And trying to uh, have that realization live in real time, that was uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I know. And it's just that it, there's so many people that are more afraid of the word racist or racism than actually doing racist things or being a racist. You know, I'm mm-hmm. sure you're, you're familiar with, with, with that idea, with with that concept, right? Yeah. Like, so I mean, that that's 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 all I want to. I just want to make sure that I, I I leave that there. So if that gets a, a natural or or whatever, actually, my button isn't. What a lot of people don't realize is that we went on for another half hour, forty five minutes after the microphone was turned oh, off. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh there's my there are my buttons. There's the natural. Yeah, and and Chuck was here last week, so whenever his movie or, or whatever comes out, I'm sure portions of that conversation will be included. But mm. you know. Welcome to Triloquy, everybody. Uh, I just want everyone to think about that concept. If Debussy's racism isn't enough for you to put him to the side, it must not be enough for you to put other folks to the side, including the folks who could be um, hiring folks, the people that you answer to at your jobs, your colleagues, your, you know, what, what, whatever. So I just, I just want people to chew on that. That was the point 
last week. I hope that was clear for everyone. So welcome everyone here to Opus 129. Oh, uh, but before we get into the downbeat, one of the, the the main reason I was thinking about bringing that WC conversation back around is because since we recorded on the 10th, um, a new recording of Gollywog's Cakewalk has come out. So, you know, in, in addition to talking about not platforming the piece and and these old recordings or mm-hmm. whatever there are new recordings of this being made and platforming and you know so mm-hmm. I, I just that this is an issue that we have to deal with in the moment this is not one of those obvious yes or no both and things it's one of those conversations that we have to be willing to engage and as uncomfortable as it can be it has to be engaged because the truth of what a gollywog is and what wc was doing and writing that piece is there there's 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 unemotional that you know it's just a fact it, it is what it is you can't deny what a gollywog is and the history there you also can't deny the fact that these recordings are still being made and how that history that that reality of that word and that and that culture of racism is not a deal breaker for all of these recording companies and these soloists and all of all of those sorts of things. So, you know, not to linger here too long, yeah. but we also had the conversation surrounding Dvorak's quote, American string quartet. Right. Before that called the Negro quartet. And before that called it was the N word. Right. So we, w- we both kind of landed at, here's this Czech guy in the United States just heard that word as part of the vernacular and used it. Right. Right. Is, do you see any application for that towards WC? Personally, I can't because there's I'm just a, I'm just asking. Yeah, because I'm, because not for Debussy. And that was the point of talking about the characterization in the music itself. So Dvorak came here. He discovered for himself, you know, those Negro melodies, as he described them in this rich history of black music. That N word was a part of the zeitgeist. And that's what the piece was known to be. It's not about him naming that. That's just the legacy of the environment and what the people Nick named it no, for me a, no, that's, that's what i think point. is the difference yeah no, that's a good point because if wc yeah. wrote gollywogs cakewalk here in the united states or at least around some black people i feel like with a little bit of a, yeah, something else would have been had with a, a little conversation bit of a stride know. piano feel to right it. right okay. so anyway so that I, I just wanted to make sure that we you know tied all of those loose ends because it, it did feel sort of like an abrupt ending there's plenty more loose ends yeah anyway uh welcome everyone to opus 129 so since last week's opus scott uh texas southern university celebrated another graduate megan the stallion also known as megan pete earned her bachelor of science degree in health administration congratulations megan i think that's really cool it was a it was a hot girl semester so for for, several of them (laughs) yeah and hey you know I, i don't know how many years she was in school but it took me a a good solid five to get out of my first degree. So. Same. Same. <laughs> so shout out to all. And and they're saying, I'm seeing studies where they say the bachelor's degree really is a five-year degree. Oh, because the first year is always a train wreck. I mean, and you're getting used to, you know, having new friends and living on your own and all those things. And, you know, if you have to work and do everything, hell, you can't take on a, a huge course load every semester, no. much less actually study to pass the classes. Yep, you know, much same. Um, so anyway, huge shout out to um, Megan The Stallion for graduating. You know, I believe uh, she's been in many interviews. She has plans to open up a center uh, for black elderly folks who can't 
necessarily afford the top tier uh, uh, care, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. older age. And that comes from her own experience, seeing her grandmother and her great grandmother go through the things that they went through. So huge congratulations to Megan Thee Stallion for this week's downbeat. I was thinking about that. I was reminded of one of Megan Thee Stallion's uh, intersections with Western classical with so-called classical music. We may have talked about this interview on Triloquy before seasons back. This interview uh, took place back in July of 2019, but I don't think we ever visited any of the audio. So I want to visit some of the audio from this interview uh, that she had with a classical music expert as published here from Capital Extra um, out of the UK. Let's, let's take a listen. Crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of twerking? Not really. No twerking? Twerking? You need to Google twerking. <laughs> yeah, see what it is. It's a, you'll like it. Have you ever heard a song called Back That Ass Up? I have not. It's like a classical sample in the beginning of it. Really? Yeah, okay. You, that, so that, that's what you should that listen to. That excites and intrigues yes. me. You should listen to so that. So back that ass up. Yes. Okay. Okay. I noticed some YouTube comments. Okay. And uh, those. So Beyonce equals Queen of Texas. Mm-hmm. Megan the Stallion equals Princess of Texas. Mm -hmm. Musical royalty is the theme here. I need a song with Bay and Megan. Yes. Okay, so first of all, it's B. I know it's spelled B-E-Y, but it's Beyonce, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so let's break this down. (laughs) First and foremost, tell me about the piece of music that's playing in the background. What piece of music is it and who is the composer? That's um, Punk Yelly's La Joconda. So when people hear that, isn't that not, is that not just prototypical so-called classical music? And that's what they chose to put in the background of this interview. Do you think there was some intentionality there? Probably because it does have a comical feel. And Mm -hmm. let's not forget about the parody Camp Granada. Sure. Hello, Mata. Hello, hello, Fada. That's okay. So, all right, yeah. from Looney Tunes, or um, there was some guy in the late forties, early fifties, maybe. That, okay. That did it as a parody. So, so e- even there, even if they aren't strictly trying to reiterate the general aesthetic of Western classical music in its traditional sense, in the most jest, they're making a reference to something that came out in the forties and fifties, mm-hmm. and you know, sure. Who was here for that? You weren't here for that. You know, so that so there must be an audience that they're placating to in this. I think of this video as the miseducation of classical <laughs> music when it comes to making the stallion. Think about the conversations that they could actually have if this so-called classical music expert could actually speak to the classical sample that she is referring to in the juvenile track, you know, mm-hmm. in the in the back that ass. It would be a different conversation. You know, it would be a different conversation and it would be a, a conversation that could enrich both sides. I hate to say it this way, but both sides of the fence, the folks on the hip hop side and the folks on the classical side. Do you not see that there are you know, and, and we can talk about, oh, well, these old white people need to learn more about hip hop and all that stuff. And I definitely agree. You know, there are things, you know, where we could get into that. And that alongside the fact that there, in my opinion, are opportunities that are being missed for the sake of so-called classical music, for the sake of Western classical music. I wonder if you can, if you if you think about any of the opportunities that are missed by treating classical music in this way in front of Megan the Stallion's fans who are sure 
to be coming to this video. I mean, the, it has almost 4 million views. That's not one of the most clicked on videos on the internet, but in those 4 million people are certainly making the stallion fans. Uh, she makes him look like a rube. <laughs> and not all so of by, us are so, rubes, So right? by proxy, then th they're holding up all of those negative stereotypes of classical music. Right. And I'm sure that there are some of whatever this gentleman's name is. I do not know this man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, whatever. Shout out to Kiki Paul. <laughs> whatever, whatever gig he's got, um, I'm sure that he has a listenership that is sitting there snickering mm -hmm. over over the the conversation that the and how he's you know too elevated to know what twerking is, which I'm going to call the BS flag. <laughs> You say he has been he on has, YouTube. Before. He has seen it twerk. <laughs> but when it comes to this host, this expert, you're saying he is. I mean, he could be walking down the street. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. But it held up every negative stereotype, didn't it? And let's even put race aside. And that's me saying that. So you know, it's <laughs> it's serious. It's not that you have a white man here talking to Megan the Stallion because. Not all white folks in the field who could be platformed as classical music experts are corny like this. I mean, you wouldn't have if, if for some reason, you know, at your job, Megan the Stallion comes and you have to interview her. First of all, you need to call me because I'm breaking all the rules and coming to the building. But <laughs> Period. Period. <laughs> no, but but even, so if so, for some reason you had to interview Megan the Stallion in conjunction with some classical crossover or whatever, you're not going to come to the interview in short pants, wearing a blazer and shirt and tie, just being the prototypical classical music nerd. You're going to come as yourself, not as a character of classical music, but an individual who happens to work in it. Real talk. How much better do you think that would go? than what you just heard. You, Seriously. You, you, you tell me. I mean, if Megan the Stallion asked you, do you know what twerking is? What would be your <laughs> reaction? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you would be like, oh, I enjoy it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, there's no I'm shame in that. <laughs> no, I, I don't feel any. Anyway, uh, congratulations to Megan the Stallion. You know, I'm, I'm bringing this up. What, what I want people to understand is that as we continue to talk about decolonization and bringing communities together, send your best, send your most equitable. It's not equitable Garrett. to put this sort of thing out there because I would have bodied that interview. There are a number of folks who would have really engaged Megan the Stallion's audience who's coming to this interview and to, you know, help them learn something about classical music that isn't just so nerd. I mean, I, I, and I feel bad using the word nerdy, but Megan the Stallion is laughing at this man. Like when they're chuckling, she's not laughing with him. She's laughing at him. And there was an opportunity for Megan the Stallion to really be able to engage this art form that so many black folks forever, you know, much less the past hundred years have engaged. And all of that, all of that opportunity was lost, much less the opportunity to share that with her audience. All of a sudden, I have to wonder if this is intentional because Capital Extra is in Greater London, also heard nationally. They're a prime competitor to BBC Radio. Mm -hmm. And it says here that they specialize in hip hop, grime, and R&B music. So... Was this a send up? So that means this so that means Capital Extra is our opposition. They're the ops because we're sitting here trying to decolonize the space and they're making a joke out of 
maintaining those structures that we're trying to break down, you see? So that doesn't even make them something to laugh at. That makes them against me, against the work that we're doing here. This podcast is all about filling those gaps and creating that equity and building those bridges. So if you're out here, you know, trying to maintain all of this stuff about classical music, even just for the sake of laughs, for the sake of something to click on, you're doing the wrong work, at least not the work we're doing anyway. Let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 129 of the Triloquy Podcast. Thank you so much for coming along for another week. To return and listeners, thank you for continuing to support this show and to help us maintain our status as one of the decolonizers, one of the leaders in the field of classical music, trying to shake things up and create something better for the future. To new listeners, thank you so much for being here and for checking out this podcast. Uh, Every week, I try to find different words to describe what this show is. And Scott, as I think about uh, some of the friends that I was hanging out this past weekend with uh, who were in town, who were in Minnesota on traveling shows, subbing with orchestras. You know, I listen to the stories that they tell. I listen to the stories that the black folks tell about being mistaken for the only other black person on stage. And, you know, folks dealing with uh, different things, even in musical theater or whatever. There are so many problems that persist. And this podcast is built to inspire thought. You know, what we talk about is is meant to inspire thought that can lead to actions that create space for folks like me in the field and like all the folks that I'm surrounded and all of the other activists in classical music. It's not that we don't want to be a part of it and we want to see it go away. This work was built to help it survive because there are so many more people, so many more audiences and so many more perspectives that could be included and affirmed through this art form. If certain conversations would have, if we were, if we would talk about decolonizing the space and not making it a space built on white Eurocentricity, but build on who we are today. So that's what this show is. So if you're new, thank you. You're in for a ride. Uh, If you want more information on the Triloquy podcast and to find out how to donate to this show, please visit our website. That's triloquy.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information on them at shuttleworthfoundation.org. Support for the Triloquy podcast also comes from Spring for the Arts. The Springboard for the Arts mission is to support artists with the tools to make a living and a life and to build just and equitable communities full of meaning, joy, and connection. More information on Springboard for the Arts at springboardforthearts.org. I'm one of uh, currently one of their fellows, um, you know, where we got this, you know, really significant cash prize and all the support and access to different things. Well, one of the folks, uh, one of the ten, uh, other nine people, in my cohort is a woman named Maria Issa. She is uh, a rapper. She works on the hip hop side of the arts and is currently running for Minnesota State Senate. So you have artists right? out here who are working for real change, for real. So and representing where? 
uh, uh, Minnesota State Senate. So I guess this area, she's canvassing on Saturday right across the street from here. You know? oh, okay. So, so okay. this area. So um, if you want more information, if you have any questions about it, uh, uh, just visit springboardforthearts.org and you can find more information on her. I'll put a, a, a special link um, in the description of this. I also, uh, this week, oh, uh, a thank you uh, for support from the National Arts Marketing Project. I have the pleasure of representing the Black Opera Alliance and their annual conference where I get to talk with hundreds of people about the good of call-out culture. And that's for another opus. <laughs> but but I was uh, about to say, oh man, this is gonna be another two and a half hour, but, one, isn't it? But you know, that that's what we're doing with the Black Opera Alliance and the National Arts Marketing Project gave us a platform to talk about that and to um, share our work with all of their audiences. At the National Arts Marketing Project, their mission is to connect, strengthen, and advance our nation's arts marketing community with innovative programs, services, and tools. You can get more information on them at americansforthearts.org. I think that covers all of the announcements. We're already 20 minutes in, so we better go ahead and jump into the first movement. I'm going to start this week, Scott, with a really quick natural. Last week, we talked about Randall Goosby, as we do on this podcast, in a very positive and celebratory way. We announced him as being an artist signed with Deutsche Grabophone. He is actually signed with DECA. I don't want no smoke with DECA. So hmm. don't send me an email, DECA. We're making the correction now. Shout out to y'all. Uh, no, that <laughs> yeah, that should have been mine. I think I said that he was with Deutsche Grabophone. Yeah, I remember and, saying- but, but I agreed. Uh, I, I agreed. So- I'm, I'm, I'm taking right. responsibility as well. So well shout let, out to Randall. Yeah, let me throw a natural two. A couple of weeks ago, I told a story about uh, a woman uh, having a, a meltdown at a Christmas carol at the Guthrie mm -hmm. Theater. And I said that the Guthrie was a community theater. Um, we have been clued into the fact that it is not. I didn't know any better. I heard somebody say it, so I repeated it that way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm passing the buck. We so. say we 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 our livings are made talking into microphones. If you talk as much as we do, sometimes you're going to say something that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah. even admit to that. And then uh, also, I just want to say a sharp, warm energy and prayers to everyone impacted by the tornadoes down south. We got a whole bunch of snow last week. That was the northern version of this nationwide storm system that was passing through, but it was much more violent down south, especially in Kentucky. I mean, unprecedented storms. Last thing I read um, said 70 people had lost their lives in the state of Kentucky alone. Prayers to everyone down there especially this close to the holidays yeah. i can't imagine i'll be sure to uh include a link for folks to donate and and support the efforts uh down there in the description of this opus towns are gone and man they, they said that they think it's going to go up over 100 by the time they get done searching mm, mm, mm. prayers to everyone down and south i i live through the uh omaha tornado of 1975 so that sort of thing terrifies me i mean grow, growing up every toward the end of the school year so i guess it would be april may yep, time yep at least once a year it was always us ducked down in the hallway or in the bathtub yep. so that's just sort of a, a part of the culture down south at least where i grew up before it to actually uh, materialize in the way it did it's it's such a tragedy so prayers to everyone down there all right well let's uh get to some more positive things and get started this week with um, a sharp that you've brought in. Scott, take it away. I found this story on ideastream.org a few weeks ago. 
uh, about a guitarist named Damien Goggins. Mm -hmm. And I've taken an interest in this little subsection of classical music recently because it was uh, about 10 months ago that I sat and wondered, where are the black classical guitarists? Mm. And that is when I started to discover names of there, you know, there are some living black guitarists um, that are writing incredible music. And there's a name that I think you're going to start hearing more and more often, which is Justin Holland. Mm. So I'm going to get to that. But I wanted to shout out Damien Goggins here because uh, he started uh, taking guitar lessons at just an after school program, you know, which is a, a great way to. Uh, be interested uh, or not interested, but introduced to any sort of instrument that yeah. you didn't get yeah. when you were, you know, coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't think that he was going to like, he's like classical guitar. What? Yeah. And now he's going into Oberlin on a scholarship. Yeah. And that is the same track that Justin Holland took. Yeah. Uh, Holland was born free but his parents were an ins a formerly enslaved black couple in virginia he was hitting all sorts of of education roadblocks you know because of his association to enslaved people he wasn't eligible for certain education opportunities so he heads up to boston and he met a guy named marian uh, he met a spanish guitarist he also started learning uh scottish flute and then he went to over to oberlin right and one of the things that, uh, that Damien talks about that I think is so important is the connection with the audience, that he goes in and when he can sit down and play a piece of music to where people are leaning in, you know, to where he really has them, mm -hmm. that connection with the audience is crucial. And that's really um, something that ties into, um, I, I've been on the education kick the last couple yeah. opuses talking yeah. about um the importance of learning the names of black composers, but also their stories. So the connection, because uh, because I was a little confused about the connection between Holland and this young man, Damien Goggin. So you're saying that a point he was making was knowing that there were black classical guitarists of generations past inspired his own practice or what's right, the connection? Right. And as, as a matter of fact, there's a quote down here at the bottom where he's talking about we're reading from ideastream.org right and uh he's talking about justin holland as a there we are goggins said he only knows of three or four professional black classical guitarists including uh one of his instructors mallet uh flippin is it is the uh, thomas flippin is the composer of a piece called uh beyond ferguson and uh and then justin holland and he said holland is from the 19th century do you see that that's a problem so i kind of feel like it's almost part of my job like once i get out of college to help give more people that look like me the opportunities that i have i want to read something uh from uh young master goggins that you know i think that we should acknowledge because it's easy to leave people behind it says here uh from goggins he said so first off I didn't even know what a classical guitar was, and I definitely didn't want to play it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, what is classical guitar? I feel like that's a question we sort of take for granted. What is that? Everyone knows what a guitar is. What are we talking about when we talk about classical guitar? Classical guitars are acoustic, typically, and they have nylon strings. The fretboard is wider than you'll see on a on a steel string or an electric, and they're gorgeous. <laughs> 
So is it the instrument? Is, is that what we're talking about? Or is, are we talking about technique and repertoire and all that sort of thing? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I mean, for so long, because, because I mean, my point is everybody at every coffee shop plays a guitar, you know, everybody mm -hmm. plays a guitar. But saying that you are a classical guitarist implies more than the type of instrument you have. Yeah, I would imagine that you get a picture in your mind of uh, technique, the way they hold it and the instrument itself. And obviously people are going to lean towards the Spanish and Mexican composers. There's a, there is a tradition in Northern Europe as well. The Swedish mm -hmm. they have a guitar tradition that's long, but um, to have this young man following the track similar to Justin Holland and bringing up his name, saying that I feel like I need to take his name forward. There is more evidence of an American classical school right there in Justin Holland. Yeah. Um, Justin Holland uh, did transcriptions of, in addition to his own compositions, he did transcriptions of other popular uh, operas. So he was able to bring that music into communities that would never be within uh, a, you know, a mile of a, of an opera production. Yeah. We'll, we'll listen to one of those classical guitar transcriptions of opera here in a second. I wanted to read a little bit more from this opera. Um, so the person uh, from this article, rather <laughs> the person uh, who was running this program, introducing these kids to uh, Western classical guitar mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, was Eric Mann. I'm going to read a few of his words here. He says, this was sort of beyond our wildest dreams. When we started the program back in 2012, we would have never guessed that we'd have someone just as brilliant as Damien is. I don't want to, I'm, I'm so good about just turning some great news into something to critique. But when I read those words, I can't help but to think about what was the desired purpose of this after-school program. And, you know, and yes, it, you, you don't find someone who's naturally brilliant at an instrument every day that that's just not a, a super common thing. But it should be the goal if we're putting instruments in the hands of youths that wouldn't have them under any of them, any other circumstances mm -hmm. to at least mentally and emotionally uh, prepare ourselves or consider the idea that one of these people could do something with this professionally or 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 whatever. It's not just about making music this busy work thing, this after school thing. It's actually having the vision to see what it could manifest into. So with all of the good um, that's in this article and with that uh, uh, and with the story of of Damien, I just want to, you know, send, send a word out to the after school teachers or the people putting out these programs. It's not just about you're, you know, making an after school check or keeping these kids busy or off the streets or however you contextualize it. You actually have the opportunity to maybe find somebody who can really take this musicianship to the next level and and spread it to, to more people and perform at the at the top level. So I, I feel like we can't take for granted that that's a possibility. And that's kind of what I read what that's kind of what i felt when i read those words that's a good point because that didn't stand out to me the first read through and when you bring it up in that context i also have to think about who's writing the article mm -hmm. yeah. and and then now all of a sudden again we're talking about well who is the article for then yeah so i don't know how to answer i i don't um, I don't know who this man is, there, this, there. this author. <laughs> I, don't I mean, there's always a little dust in the corner. I don't know who this man he is. <laughs> I mean, he could be walking down the street. I wouldn't. Oh, I it's. Wouldn't um, I need to add that to the board. It's. Um, board. <laughs> it is not a man. It's Amanda Rabinovitz and Brittany Nader. Okay. Well, you know, uh, sh shout out to those writers. 
you know, and 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 no shade to uh, Mr. Eric Mann, you know, for for his words. I just think that's something important to think about. These after school programs. I'll repeat myself as we transition. These after after school programs, they aren't just busy work things. You have the opportunity to to create and to nurture another world class musician. Maybe they didn't think they would get anybody in the program. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well. Um, what are we? What music do you want to? I was transition out of this. After with? reading, you know, after re- reading the article and just thinking about, here's this uh, young man who, uh, I bet you, in a few years when he's done, and uh, I bet you, there's going to be like a a Justin Holland collection mm-hmm. that he is going to have his name on. Yeah, and and I hope that happens. Um, but the piece of music that they talk about by uh, Thomas Flippin is called Beyond Ferguson. And the way that it opens up, it, it it really had me kind of scooting a little bit, but I was also in the classical realm. So I still had yeah. that idea, but there was uh, a different energy about it. That the the way that it opens up is lovely, and uh, you you like the end of it though. Who does you? this? Who does this performance feature? It's not just Damien. No, it doesn't. And you've caught me flat-footed here. Oh, it's, uh, it says here CCGS students. So uh, Damien and some of his classmates. So you know, we, we we get to hear a lot of these young black youths who are being uh, not only introduced to classical guitar but classical guitar ensemble, which you know, done via is Zoom. Really unique. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a listen to a little bit of it here. didn't mention the title beyond ferguson of course for folks who don't know they're talking about the tragedies that took place down in ferguson years ago with the murder of michael brown and you know just as a a reminder of you know we can never disconnect the narrative of uh and the reality of police violence police brutality from these black youths because when the police pulls over you know these kids or stops them at the store or whatever he don't care or she don't care that they take classical guitar lessons no. after school so this is something that still impacts them so i think just you know and, and important to name that that even down to the music that they practice and play it reflects those conversations and and that reality for um for for young black youth i love to see it we mm. uh classical guitar tends to be set aside you know even in my uh, music school training i was always aware of the guitar students but you're not in orchestra with them you're right. not in other ensembles with them that you know they're just kind of always living in their own world and i feel like um even with the the sort of you know cloudy mystical nature of classical guitar among musicians a lot of folks who don't have connections to music may not even be aware of what it really is. And that's why I was trying to ask you, you know, to break that down, the the 
the finger style. You know, we just we, we can't take for granted that some people only know the guitar as this rock band thing or, mm -hmm. or this strummed instrument. So there's so many uh, shades and colors and um, aesthetics of, of this age old instrument, the guitar. And it's so great that these kids are getting to taste that flavor of it. For the longest time, it was considered, you know, the vagabond instrument, you know, the the vulgar instrument, a folk mm -hmm. thing that sure. didn't belong on a concert stage. And mm -hmm. you can thank most of the Spanish composers for for changing that. Yep. But um, we had one in America, Justin Holland. Yeah. So let's a black man play his you know, stuff. Who despite y'all's slavery, y'all's oppression and all of that stuff still managed. He worked on the Underground Railroad. He was a Freemason. Justin Holland, look him up. And y'all can't go practice for your lesson and he doing all that. <laughs> It's not funny. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> but anyway, huge shout out to um, Damien uh, Goggins. Mm -hmm. Is it Damien Goggins? Damien Goggins. Goggins. Yep. Congratulations on your scholarship to Oberlin. Yeah, and, and good luck up there, Dylan. We've, we've had to talk about Oberlin here before. We Once won't backtrack, but right. <laughs> but good, good luck to Damien. All right, well, I'm going to um, round out this first movement with my own accidental. I'm going to give it a flat. <laughs> I have to contextualize the flat a little bit, so... I'm involved in many activist spaces, not just in music, and I get a lot of petitions and things that come my way that I participate in. Since the last time we recorded, a petition made my way from uh, Color of Change. I'll have a, a, a link to uh, this in the, in the description. The title here of the petition is Fight Back Against White Supremacy and Heavy Metal Music. I'll read just a little bit of the petition. It says, music platforms have a responsibility to track and remove white supremacist music and white nationalist artists. These heavy metal bands are using racist dog whistles and explicit symbols to recruit followers and push people to white nationalism. And oftentimes, the streaming companies do not have the expertise to know when it's happening. Talk to me a little bit about what you know about heavy metal, black metal, how, whatever you know, phrase and subgenres you want to get to, and white supremacy. This was something that I really had to read about and research. I'm not versed in metal or, or, or those things. I didn't realize that there was proximity. It makes sense to me now, but is this something that you were aware of? I know that they are out there. I couldn't name them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could name the band, um, but. but no, and and the the metal bands that all of the guys that I used to run around with in high school and looking at it progress through college and all that got radio airplay. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, is it is it really heavy metal then, or is it just hard rock? I don't know, because there are people who will split hairs with you over that. Of course, of right? course. But, but, but the but, European stuff, the black metal, all of that, I have no reference. That um, it frightens me. That's not for me. I mean, and. Uh, and I'll just ask it this way. I'm sure you would be surprised if you found out there were uh, white supremacist hip hop artists, right? I mean, that, that would be surprising <laughs> that, to you, that right? Would, that would raise my eyebrows. You know, so so this, not to say that I was just surprised to learn about this in the world of black metal and heavy metal, but it's just something that I never thought about. So because the petition didn't name explicitly any bands, I just went to Google. I searched white supremacist metal bands and the, mm -hmm. the, whoever does the algorithms over at Google is like, what is this man? <laughs> All the stuff I Google and, <laughs> and doing my research of things. So anyway, so I comb through some things and read some articles and I eventually find myself on to a Reddit post, you know, Reddit, you know, gives it up. There's always stuff to find there. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I find myself to a Reddit post that includes this spreadsheet that I will also link 
in the description that lists all sorts of metal bands from around the world. Let me scroll down to the end of the uh, spreadsheet here. It lists a total of 321 bands and they're each Damn. labeled as Nazi or unknown or safe. And, you know, just to, you know, bring bring to the carpet some of these wait, bands. Wait, 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 a safe white supremacist band? Is that what no, you're saying? No, a safe metal band. Oh. These are 327 okay. okay, 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 metal bands. Okay. Um, so I looked up some of the bands that have been labeled here as Nazi or white supremacist, and their music is very much out there. It's very much on Spotify, very much on YouTube, Bandcamp, all of these things. So, you know, the the, the petition is trying to put pressure on these platforming agencies, the, mm -hmm. these music uh, distributors to say, hey, you shouldn't want these bands. This should not be OK with you. You know, looping and not to beat a dead horse, but, you know, looping this back around and making some connection to the Debussy conversation. It seems like the conversations that happen on the classical side when it comes to, well, if we had if we have to cancel Wagner and Debussy, we have to cancel this person and never, you know, and that's just the excuse or, you know, the, the talking point. Mm -hmm. It seems like there must be something similar for uh, platforming agencies and music distributors whoever who specialize in heavy metal and black metal because it's not just one or two bands that are being cited on this list as having white supremacist agendas i mean it's it's many of them so you know the band living color we had um i, oh, brought, right. I brought in cult of personality D dc would you, yeah, dc base would yeah. you would you call that metal or is that I, I would because i don't know the <laughs> I, I i would call it both of those things because i'm not you know I'm I'm not versed in, mm -hmm. in in that way, but I wouldn't. You know, I, I think that speaks to you know uh, cultural implications of aesthetics of music because I wouldn't expect uh, before you brought that band in probably earlier this season, last season, I wouldn't have expected any black person to be creating music of that general aesthetic with the electric guitars and yeah. loud drums and things. But yeah, they 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 exist. So as as we um you know hold these. Uh, uh, platforming again, platforming agencies and and uh, streaming services accountable. I think we also have to raise up some of the names of the the black people who have been marginalized in that aesthetic and that genre and continue to move forward. So we're going to transition out of this and into the second movement with a performance by a band called Hyrax. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing uh, that name right. H-I-R-A-X. I'm going to read a little bit of this. I, I, I found an article that said the 10 greatest metal songs by African-American artists. Um, under Hyrax, it says Caton W. DePena is devoted to his craft. He's the only original member left keeping high racks going strong and is just as much a powerhouse today as he was when he first introduced high racks back in 1984. He continues to stay active and supportive in the thrash metal community. See, another mm -hmm. subgenre outside of just playing music while never forgetting his cultural roots. So we're going to hear a little bit of music uh, by this band that you know, has one of these black folks in it. We have to support all the black musicians, all the black people, even those on the um, on the rock side. This tune that we're going to hear a little bit of is called El Diablo Negro. It sounds like me. So, sounds like the song that needs to be written about me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's listen to a little bit of this <laughs> to get us into the uh, second movement of this opus. El Diablo Negro by Hyrax.
have fun mixing that. These heavy metal bands know they can make a lot of fucking noise, can't they? <laughs> I see why the parents were like, cut that off. <laughs> it sounds like an airplane crashing for an hour. That's, you know, that's, that's not my vibe. But again, we have to affirm the black folks who manage to live in that and 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 that genre, you know, in classical music, and you know, this podcast is called Triloquy. So let, let me say something real quick. In classical music, you have the white supremacy that the industry and the musicians and the infrastructures won't even fess up to and be accountable for. So it exists, but folks pretend like it doesn't. Okay. So it must be that much more difficult for black folks in metal to have these bands that are explicitly white supremacists all the way to the point to getting their, uh, getting what they're doing on petitions to end it. You know, Mm. the black folks in that genre, in that field, at those conferences, at those music festivals all all of those gatherings they must really be going through it it must really have a love for the art form their art form to continue in it so shout out to them do you think there's a heavy metal conference out there there has to be (laughs) i mean there's a conference for everything if there are furry conferences anime conferences classical music conferences how ridiculous does that sound there there must be metal conferences i would say metal is a more lucrative business than classical if you just add up all the dollars and cents it must be right or maybe it isn't i don't know maybe yeah so i'm i'm, I'm, I'm sure there are so shout out to hyrax huh yeah shout out to uh again kate and w depenya and all of the black folks out there doing your best in the world of metal music i'm gonna sign that petition i hope y'all will too because we need to make sure that space remains as safe as possible for as many of those musicians as possible. All right, we're in the second movement where we are taking the second ending. We're taking a piece of music that we repeated over and over again all week. And instead of repeating it fully once more, we listen to just a little bit of it and talk about why we were repeating it all week. How about you um, lead us off in this second movement? You were talking about classical guitar in the first movement, and you have more of that to share with us here in the second movement. Just uh, to hit on Justin Holland yet again, um, as I'd mentioned in the first movement, he did transcriptions of popular operas, Mm -hmm. and I have heard uh, some recordings, like his uh, transcription of William Tell, I don't understand how that is played, but it happened. So perfect um, practice makes perfect. Right. And um, also uh, was a composer and also wrote one of the first pedagogy uh, method books mm-hmm. for, for classical guitar. So Justin Holland was in it in the, in the 19th century and uh, his music is just starting to get uh, quote unquote rediscovered. People are coming back around to it and actually giving it some attention. Lara Downs, has uh, her digital project, her digital recording project, and she has released some with uh, some guitar recordings that you can find on her website. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm stuck on this education piece, these uh, these last few opuses, and you were talking about um, conservatories, colleges, whatever. You're not you're teaching technique, but you're not the the kids have the spirit, the teacher spirit, the soul. They don't yeah. have any seasoning on mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, just plain plain chicken in the oven (laughs) (laughs) so not even anything in the cavity so um i've just been tracking people who are recording justin holland's music on youtube and i came across uh, a performance by john alvarado doing uh martha which is a part of the opera called martha by uh justin holland and 
it's it's tough. It's a, it's not an easy piece because there's so much space in between the notes in some spots, and sure. and there's the tendency to want to hurry through it. But when I watch him play this, the commitment, I feel, I you know, I feel everything in the in the uh, the expressions coming across his face. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the facial expressions because I feel like it's so easy as a classical guitarist specifically to get tied up into making sure your finger is on this fret and da da da. You know, you can very easily become this guitar engineer and not this guitarist, mm. this musician. And in this performance, you know, not only are we seeing it, the folks listening can't see it, but I feel like even in listening to it, you can hear how time is being taken with every gesture, every note. As you said, there's 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 no rushing. And it's this really, again, this incredible piece of music by a black composer that they don't tell us about in conservatory. Now, when you, that it's not all this way. You know, this this track isn't all, you know, slow waiting for the next uh, note to show up. It, it gets a little raucous and rambunctious near the end. Oh, yeah. to John Alvarado. How much time are you? I, I know you like uh, playing with your electric guitars and the pedals and all of those things. How much time have you been given to classical guitar lately? Has has this piece of music inspired any of your own practice? The nylon, my classical nylon string is upstairs. I touch that one every day. Okay. Yeah. Uh, whether or not I, I'm not necessarily playing classical. Sure. But um, I can almost get through the anonymous Spanish romance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, better than I ever played it when I was taking lessons. So, mm -hmm. John, uh, great technique, and keep the facial expressions coming because we can hear it in the music. Well, when, um, you know, when, when, you're, when you're done practicing and perfecting that uh, Spanish music, maybe you can give a little time to the black music. He was, <laughs> that was black music. I'll say it for you to play. <laughs> for you to oh, play on I your I thought you were talking about, I said, don't drag John into this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if I could find. I, I wonder if I could find a tablature of it because I don't read music. Oh, because you don't read. Yeah, <laughs> and you, and you know, a tabs is a different kind of reading music, and yeah. I get how it works. You know, and, and my very amateur beginner uh, guitar skills, but it looks upside down to me. I think we've talked about that. Tabs for me seem like they should be the other way, and it would be easy <laughs> for me, you know, to think about anyway. Uh -huh. um, but but yeah, shout out to uh, John Alvarado, and again. 
to the uh to the subgenre of classical guitar. We have the Rodrigo concertos and and all of these uh, other things that feature the classical guitar, but the so-called classical guitar, but it's not always centered in in these conversations. I feel like so many of those musicians must feel left out of a lot of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, great to spend a bit of time thinking about classical guitar. Well, for my second ending this week, I wanted to come back to Kanye. So as we're as we're wrapping up the year 2021, and we'll probably get into this in the last opus for the year, but I've been looking at uh, the, the way that the streaming services have been tracking my own listening and what were my top artists and X, Y, and Z. And, and Kanye has been up there. And I feel like I do my fair share of defending Kanye West on this podcast. But um, an article was sent to me over the weekend. I'm not even going to get into it, but it seems like there's this perpetual um, urge to just cancel, to lynch, if you will, Kanye West because of the Make America Great Again hat, because of his proximity to Trump, because of X, Y, and Z. And with all of those things, for me personally, and I know we talk about, you know, art versus artist in, in many different ways, you know, certainly in classical music, but with all of those things, I think uh, for him to have done what he is doing in music and not only music to have made a name, love it or hate it, you know, in fashion, in um, in sports to a degree and all of these different things. So if anybody is going to give Kanye West, yay, his flowers is going to be me and not only here on my platform, but in my own listening. So as I've been uh, continuing to enjoy his latest album, Donda, I've really loved to see how folks who have no connection to hip hop, no connection with gospel have been engaging that music. There's a pianist who we have featured a lot uh, on this show. Uh, He's called The Theorist. If you've ever listened to uh, pop transcriptions of piano tunes on YouTube, I'm sure that you have made it to him. Well, The Theorist partnered up with a cellist named Nicholas Yee to put together a Donda medley. I'm going to put it in the description of this, but my favorite uh, my, my favorite portions of this uh, about six or so minute medley is toward the end. There are a couple tunes from his uh, latest album, from Kanye's latest album. One is called Hurricane. The other is called Come to Life. And I think the theorist and Nicholas Yee do a really incredible job with these two pieces of music. check out the rest of that. As you listen to that, Scott, I'm sure that you would recognize that as not being one of the so-called great cello works of Schubert or or these other European composers. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm sure that you wouldn't say there isn't some place. Last week, you sort of talked about uh, the way 
uh, classical radio, at least in the way that you do it, is sort of put together with a window billboard, which is a peek into the hour. And then there's what we call a, a window piece that is, you, you know, usually something short, maybe even something poppy, something to, you know, get into the 06 of the hour where, you know, the, the meat of the things happen. This could certainly at the very least be that. I, I think that could fit into some sort of window piece sort of thing. And we're featuring the ch- uh, the, uh, the theorist and Nicholas Yee here. If this was, if this would dare be, and maybe I should put this out as a challenge, if this music would dare be recorded and platformed by Isatakane Mason and her brother Sheku, you know, that would surely, you know, be even more of a reason to put this there. The aesthetic is fine. And I don't think that the composer behind this aesthetic should be considered uh, if, if we want to cre- create some sort of barrier or, or whatever. Would you have any um, discomfort announcing composer Kanye West? On your show, if this have if music like this happened to make one of your uh, one one of your playlists, no, I would say it and then turn off the microphone and sit back and wait. You wouldn't, so you would expect the audience to, you know, saying the name Kanye West. You would expect They'll, the audience there, to react. There's going to be a few uh, regular <laughs> uh, appearances in my in my inbox that would sound off about it. Sure, but if you said nothing about the composer behind it, maybe. It is something that if it was a different would, name, if it was something yeah. like that, um, I don't. It, it, I don't think it would phase as much. No, and and the reason being is just look at what Christopher O'Reilly did with the uh, uh, the Radiohead right. cover disc. Um, right. You know, there's a there's a Paul McCartney uh, CD out there. Working classical has, and he's been on classical radio a, forever. Right, he has a string quartets of uh, Beatles tracks that get out there. Not you know, to so, mention the John Rutter double piano concerto that features Beatles music that I couldn't play enough mm. down in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you talk about, you know, not repeating things too often. I couldn't play it enough for them. So, you know, I think as we talk about decolonizing classical music and transforming the space, yes, the aesthetics themselves, the idea of aesthetic definition of classical music has to be transformed. Mm. That's me. I think this is one of those stepping stones toward that. There's nothing offensive about piano and cello, as has been proven by programming practices for you know years and years and years. And you know, on the same account, I don't think this music should be disqualified. And I understand that people will be challenged by hearing the name Kanye West, which I think, you know, again, says a lot to what we're talking about when it comes to Debussy and those sorts of of folks. Mm -hmm. There's been generational conditioning to not feel a way about those names, despite what they have done. But this living composer who through his hip hop and through his gospel is reaching very deep classically trained people and they're creating these transcriptions i think there's something to be said about that i think there's something to be said about that impact within the music industry across genre and i think that could manifest into really great impact for audiences if we would you know continue to be brave and and give that music a bit of a chance um you know what was almost the downbeat this week uh, was an excerpt from the Miss Universe pageant. I found myself watching a bit of that last night after I saw what was trending on Twitter. And um, Miss South Africa, um, her question dealt with 
cancel culture and what should we do with people who don't know how to act on the internet and basically her answer was <laughs> and she got a loud applause from the audience she was like i believe in cancel culture people who don't know how to act need to be set to the side and x y and z but she went on to talk about how redemption is something that we have to also consider I got on my radio show down in uh, Tennessee after Kanye West was talking about slavery as a choice and said what I needed to say. And I'm sure y'all can imagine what I would have said, mm. you know, and I followed that up with um, a Negro spiritual that, you know, is sung from the perspective of a slave and a Nina Simone. I think Nina Simone's rendition of Strange Fruit, you know, just to oh. just to make my point, mm. you know. So I bring that up to say I if anyone has openly and on large platforms critiqued some of the actions and words of Kanye West, it has been me. And I believe in the path forward. I believe in the positive movement he's made toward his God and, and his spirituality, the way that he has contextualized that in legendary music and how that music has reached the masses, even conservatory trained pianists and cellists. I think that could go even the step further and reach audiences if we would just allow pieces of music like these into our classical spaces. So that's what I've been spending my time listening to this week. I can't wait to hear more classically trained musicians, Western classically trained musicians embracing the music of now in this way. When I was doing the morning show at KVNO in Omaha, whenever I would put on the Christopher O'Reilly disc or mm -hmm. the Paul McCartney disc or whatever, I would get calls about dumbing it down. So what, you know what's going to happen if, if you know that the inbox would fill up with at least a few yeah. of those sort of messages. So what would you say to the person that says, you know, this this does nothing to further quote unquote classical. This is dumbing it down to try to get broader appeal. What do you say? You know, and you know what's going to happen. I would I would have to calm myself down and figure out my exact I, words because I saw you take my, a breath because my initial response is dumbing it down. It needs to be dumbed down for you. I'm the one with the degrees and the years of experience. You sitting behind your keyboard, tell me the orchestras that you've played in. Tell me the pieces of music that you have platformed, the performances that you made possible, pushing the, the genre forward in the way that all of us in the field of not only performance, but broadcast media have. You know, every single part, you know, as much of a of a, a bone to pick I have with the vast majority and I'm using that uh that phrase intentionally as much of a bone as I have to pick with the vast majority of classical music radio hosts every one of those classical music radio hosts has put in the work of learning about these composers learning about the lies and the context surrounding this this music that we platform so that that is the work you know so dumbing it down is it can't be approximated to this music. This is the next step. This is moving forward. They'll listen, they would never complain about Mozart's, I forget the French name, um, but the twinkle variations. Mm -hmm. We have this child's piece of music <laughs> with variations that y'all worship, but something that was written today and translated into cello and piano, or were you talking about the radio head, just piano, can't be celebrated? No, 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 no. Nothing is being dumbed down. You need to come up and learn about the progression of music and the way, excuse me, that this genre needs to be put forward. That that would be, so through, through that instant reaction, <laughs> I would find a way to package that and to tell you know that listener, bless your heart, <laughs> this is pushing classical music forward, okay? They, 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 you know, the person who has that uh, critique can't tell me about Kanye West's 
uh, uh, collaboration with folks like Caroline Shaw that we've talked about on this podcast. They can't they can't talk about all those intersections. So it's not being dumbed down. You're just being left behind. And, you know, shout out to Katie and Delaney from Classically Black. When you asked them a similar question back, I think it was season two, they were like, well, I wouldn't even respond. I wouldn't even talk to that person. And as we continue to move forward, we have to realize that this music, even transcriptions of this music, it doesn't need the classical infrastructure. It doesn't need the concert halls. This will always get views. This will always get clicks. The theorists, the pianists behind all of these pop transcriptions is doing just fine. He doesn't have a boss to talk to. He doesn't have to ask permission to take a vacation or to, or, or to lay in bed because he's sick. So he's the one who's made it, you know, and this music has been the vehicle for that. So I feel like it benefits the classical infrastructures to open up their doors to music like this, despite what the the, the smart ass every now and again would write in about talking about dumbing things down. But because for every one of those listeners, there are five, 10, 100 people who would tune in specifically for that if they heard that you were putting on classical Kanye on your show. And that's just considering you know if they know how to market you know that sort of programming which is another conversation but anyway my my very long way of saying uh that would be my response to remind the listener that it's not about being dumbed down but and at the end of the day the opinion of that person doesn't even matter when it comes to the uh creation and sustaining of this sort of music was it beethoven that said do you think you come to mind when the mu when the yeah he said he said do you think i give a damn about you or you little fiddle when the muse visits me (laughs) (laughs) no i I was only asking because you know it's gonna happen yeah but we but but we need that again as as we talk about change in a broader sense Mm -hmm. we have to remember that change requires doing something different which means people who are used to or want to do things the same are going to find some dissonance we have to stop placating to these people who don't want change to happen you know and that's just that that's that's just how I feel about that. That's way too long to go into an email. Shout out to um, <laughs> I don't know because some of these people need it. So some of these people need that little spanking, especially as free and open as they feel to. Uh, and you can you know certainly speak to uh, the folks who just feel free and open to send hateful and and uh, uh, violent you know offensive things. They don't have a problem with that. So if they need a little bit of education from someone like me, so be it. Mm. Shout out to the theorist. Shout out to Nicholas Yee. I hope y'all will continue to listen to and discover all of the newest iterations and uh, collaborations and cross-pollination of hip-hop, rap, pop music, all of those things, and what it can be turned into and transformed into on the instrumental Western classical side of things. All right, we're getting into the third movement. Last week, I shared with y'all part one of my uh, conversation with Renee Baker, uh, again, a Chicago-based composer who has done so many things. She was a member of the Chicago Sinfonietta. She started many of her own orchestras. Uh, she's um, substituting now as a conductor, I believe, at uh, DePaul University. Uh, uh, last week, she talked about her experiences coming up in the genre as a black woman, as a, a classically trained musician. And excuse me, this wine is trying to, this, this wine is interrupting my speech, this red wine. And uh, the importance of the um, AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Well, this week, where we're going to pick up in part two of the conversation, Renee talks about her entry into creative music, into improvised music, free jazz, all all of those different things as someone who is 
you know, Western classically trained. She talked about how surprised she was to be invited into these spaces and the opportunity that uh, she took on by getting into those spaces. And, you know, again, the same we're talking about this Kanye, just who is also from Chicago, by mm-hmm. the way, I didn't mm-hmm. think about that before, um, you know, spreading the uh, the classical, Western classical training with the more improvisatory music and the creative music and the, and the free music. Uh, one of the composers that she mentions uh, near the beginning of part two of this conversation is uh, an improvisatory composer named Leroy Jenkins. So we're going to transition into my conversation with Renee Baker by listening to a bit of one of his tunes. It's called Through the Ages of Jehovah. Music here by Leroy Jenkins to get us into my conversation with the one and only Renee Baker. Everything that anybody did that wasn't classical, I just poo-pooed. I poo-pooed it. Well, that's how we're trained, right? Exactly. Any of us. And I said, if up, if you can't do this, then you're doing that because you can't do this. Because you don't, you you know how we puff ourselves up, mm-hmm. but we learn when we can't get a job that the <laughs> you know the puffing goes down. But yeah. I was lucky. I was working managing orchestras. I, I was doing it. But when I got the invitation to petition for membership, I said, why? I don't do that. And so there were members, people who gave me, even people outside of the AACM who gave me recordings and said, you know, sister, you need to learn to listen differently. And I said, my listening is fine. I've done this <laughs> fine. But I said, I will entertain this. And so they gave me, especially string players, you know, um, they gave me, you know, Snuff Smith and Leroy Jenkins and on, on, on. And I, I just gave them the CDs back. And I said, these people do everything that my teachers told me never to do. That was my training. So they said, take them back. Listen again. <laughs> yeah. And because really I am an autodidact, I just, I said, all right, open your mind, listen, 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 listen to not just string players. I had to go beyond that because if these people had all these recordings and stuff out, then somebody was finding it entertaining. So I needed to try to find that avenue. So, that opened the other side of the composition journey because in order for me to understand or think I was trying to understand what they were doing, I needed to write because I didn't know that vocabulary. I didn't know anything about that vernacular of music. So I said, I am going to write every day until I understand this nonsense. (laughs) Right. Okay. I didn't improvise. I did, but, but I, I thought, of course, I thought there was something to it, but we poo-poo what we don't know. So writing and then um, 
actually Nicole Mitchell invited me to join Black Earth Strings. And I thought, and do what? Mm-hmm. I, do, I do not know how to do any of this. So I coached with her a little bit and, and worked with people. And I gradually just kind of started to understand what was happening on that side. But then with all that classical training, you know, I had to find a way to bridge it. Sure. Because I couldn't have just that over there and this over here. Exactly. Because that's the problem with music in general. We, so in, in my head, I had to, man, to, I had to marry it. And so studying and developing not just my symphonic conducting skills, but my skills studying gestured conducting, studying Iancu Dumitrescu, Earl Brown. Oh, just, there was so much out there. Carl Berger in New York. I found the bridge. And they, they were not exclusive. These arenas were not exclusive of one another for me. Actually, it tripled my world. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of those bridges, I wonder if you'll talk about your uh, latest collaboration. So the American Composers Forum commissioned a piece uh, from AACM, and you were there to to make sure it all went well. How, how about you talk a little bit about it? ACF is a wonderful organization, and they're doing what a lot of organizations talk about doing. Okay. It was a very, very hugely brave thing to not only engage three composers, but they could have only engaged three musicians, Mm -hmm. but they took on, I don't think they knew they were taking on an entire collective. Okay. With a whole lot of personalities and a whole lot of skill sets all over the place. Um, but what they what they saw when the group came to Minneapolis was, um, I think, powerful enough for them to engage the unknown arena of the AACM. Um, I'm really thrilled that the composers got an opportunity to see what a group like this can do because all three of their pieces were entirely different Mm -hmm. and from totally different. You could tell the backgrounds were completely different. So um, I had the pleasure of directing Rudresh Mahantapa's piece and we got a chance to kind of get warm and fuzzy uh, as we, you know, got to know each other. But one thing, um, I, I I would suggest that when these kinds of collaborations happen, that a little bit has got a little bit more has got to be known about each other between the groups and the composers. Mm. Yeah. So Rel- the relationship. Um, yes. 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 As opposed to just a gig, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean. And that's no one's fault. That. That's nothing that ACF is at fault for or the AACM. But in order to make these kinds of things work well, 
multiple, multiple conversations need to be had. And, and the groups and the creators have to be encouraged to get to know one another very well. Mm -hmm. um, the wonderful thing for me is that actually, even though Rudresh is um, at uh, Princeton, we have very, very common uh, backgrounds and learning patterns. Um, it was a pleasure to make magic with that piece. And I think for the composers, they got to learn that often some of the magic that happens is not on the page. When you have a I mean, that was actually my next question. Like with this piece being so improvisatory, being so so-called untraditional, you know, what is the role of a conductor? Are, are you, I mean, it, it, it would be easy to assume that you're building walls, creating parameters around this music that should just be completely free. Oh no. See, that's a misnomer. That's, that's not, actually not true. Because there's tons of composers inside the walls of the AACM. And the way we the way we all approach our particular music arena is very different. As a trained, and a lot of people say, I've trained, I'm classical too. Well, all right. I'll give <laughs> you that. All right. You had piano lessons or whatever it was. But sitting in orchestras for decades and and coming from the symphonic world is a bit different. So uh, the piece that Rudresh gave us um, was actually um, totally through composed. Every note. So now how I as a conductor or creator will, will come at that is something that we need to sometimes have a discussion about because mm -hmm. I'm aware of the skill set of the group and I'm seeing your skill set on the paper. So um, I had to come to a happy medium because again, we have to look at uh, the reading, the reading skill sets. We have to think about, we have to be very kind to the audience. So music crazy or classical should take the audience on a journey of some sort. And so as a conductor, as a regular symphonic conductor, I knew I had to bridge the intent of the composer and the abilities of the ensemble. And I'm good at that. <laughs> what was the uh, you, you speak about the audience? What were you hoping that the audience would take away from this performance specifically? Um, what I hope they take away from every performance that I do. Even if you didn't like it, you couldn't say it wasn't exciting. Mm -hmm. it, it might actually send you on a journey to the CD store or to iTunes or something to find out more about me or the ensemble or whatever. But I do know that part of the difficulty that the new music community often faces is that 
often they are unkind to the audience because they feel if I use ink and put it on paper, then it's legit. And this is why often you end up with five people at the concert, your mama, your daddy, and a few, you know, three, <laughs> three cousins. Yeah. Because you've gotten so caught up in your trajectory and you've forgotten that as a composer or even as a conductor, you have to bring something to fruition for, for an audience member. And, and I don't care if it's new music, classical music, reggae. I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be kind to the audience. Doesn't mean you can't expose them to some stuff, but at some point you got to bring them back to something so that they can breathe. <gasps> okay. I heard crazy long enough now. Okay. Um, and I know that is one of my gifts as a conductor, whether it's classical or whether it's creative. Because of my training, the, there's peaks, valleys, peaks, valleys. Doesn't mean we're going to end it, end at a peak or end at a valley. You just got to wait till I get to the end. Because yeah. sometimes I don't know either. But, <laughs> but you will never leave a performance and say anything but wow. So I want to... I want to blow up that idea. You you were just speaking to being caught up in our own personal trajectories and not, you know, looking more broadly. You know, uh, this this concert uh, was also in conjunction with AACM's 55th anniversary. So we, we've yeah. are, we've already spoken to what they have been able to create as an organization, a collective on that trajectory. I wonder yeah. where you see that trajectory going. What from your perspective, what does AACM have in store for the next 55? years you know what what i love about the organization now when you think about an orchestra like say the chicago symphony do you think of individuals no we think of the the group correct but when you go toward the aacm identity the aacm identity is the membership. So whether you are a dyed in the wool, creative music lover or not, I bet you can name people that are in the AACM. And I challenge you to name more than one or two in the CSO. You're right. I can't. <laughs> I can't. And, and, that, and that's not and but if you can't with your level of education, then think, become the average Joe for a day. The average people go to things because I have tickets. Sure. <laughs> I, I. It's about being seen sometimes. I have tickets to lyric. Do you know one chorister? Do you know who's even conducting? Do you even know what opera you're going to go see? Yeah, or the librettist behind the opera. Hello. <laughs> right, right. But even a person that's not super, super interested in creative music, you will quickly learn and identify the product of the AACM with people from the AACM.
I see more of the same. I see the organization embracing younger people. We, we, we just brought in um, a group of, well, people to, to my taste are, are young. I mean, if you're in your 30s and 40s, you're a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that does a lot for the longevity of the organization. And not just about age, the, the current um, executive board. Um, it's lovely to see another woman in charge. It's lovely to see someone who still feels she has much to learn at the helm of the, at, of the organization. Because sometimes in things like this, we tend to give the power to people who know the most. Right. Yeah. That doesn't help anybody. They're going to be stumbles. They're going to be challenges. And the younger generation needs to know how to overcome that and not always be handed the solutions. So some of the solutions they'll have to create. So I see, hopefully we see more bridging of great black music and the other genres. And I think I've helped to do some of that because the problem with classical music is that it has become exclusive. Yeah. It, it becomes as exclusive as they want it to be. And so with, with the music of the AACM, the demographic of the listener is all over the map. And to me, that's the mark of a successfully publicized event, a successfully um, presented organization that though we are a collective of composers of African descent, we have not made the enjoyment of that music exclusive. So right. we embrace all of the demographics. So on the other side of this, when you go to the classical world, I'll be very general, but this is what happens. In order to in, in, in engage us, oh, we need Wynton Marsalis. Oh, we got to do Porgy and Bess. Oh, oh, let's cram everything into Black History Month. Yep. Because it's still not clear that our brains are all the same. And that if you can em embrace it, <laughs> we've probably already embraced it. Exactly. Exactly. But economically, you want to keep it for yourself so you'll poo-poo our knowledge and our skill sets. And see, that's what we have to not buy into. So this whole thing about starting your own, one of the wonderful things, and I don't know if it's been the only or whatever, but I would imagine I'm probably the only Black woman with her own orchestra that presented her opera at Symphony Center. Sure. But if I if I fell into that colonial thinking, I would have said, opera, me? Mm -hmm. That's theirs. Oh, no, no, no. Now, we've learned better. Okay. And I love it that everybody's cheering that the Met, after how many 
years. 127, I think it was. Yeah. Let Terrence Blanchard. Mm -hmm. Darling. Even that language, let him, you know. Thank you. <laughs> you sold more tickets than you probably sold in a long time. I mean, I was there. I got on an airplane to go see it. My first time in that building, you know. Do you think it was an accident? No, not at all. After the pandemic? Not at all. Okay, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> so, so, so what I'm saying is, as I embrace the AACM, I embrace symphonies. I embrace operas. I embrace movie scores. This time coming up for me, that's coming to an end at DePaul, the concert we're doing next week, we're doing a violin concerto, oh man. And then um, we're doing a Japanese film noir from 1926, A Page of Madness with live ensemble. And then the following week, the concert orchestra is doing two symphonic works, one called Perfect Water, the other called Subtle Hues of Blackbirds, which was commissioned by the Southeast Symphony yep. in L.A. by Anthony Parther. Anthony Parther, shout out to him. Yep. Yep. And and um, Perfect Water was commissioned by Harper's Symphony in Palatine. The maestro is William Porter. Brother. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So commissions don't just come from the uh, from over there. Right. We need to commission our own. I mean, our own. So now everybody that's brown ain't our own. We got lots of <laughs> yeah. people. I mean, we, well, you know what I'm talking about. We, I, we, I do. We we have to we have to save something for us. Um, and so groups like ACF are appreciated and needed and needed because they're a big organization for them to embrace a collective like the AACM and not a black orchestra like, oh, Chinake or whatever. You know, we, we have to become more inclusive of all the genres that we embrace. Yeah, all of the thought, just the diversity of thought that surrounds music, you know, that has to be embraced. We do, we do everything and we have to believe it. And eventually they'll believe it, organizations. But just because someone doesn't give you a grant or give you the money to do it, I tell people, if you wanted to start a sandwich shop, let's take it out of music, mm -hmm. if you wanted to start a sandwich shop, you have to do whatever you have to do to make money, to buy bread, meat, lettuce, cheese. You can't sit on the doorstep and go, they won't, they won't give me. Go get it. Go get it and start your dream. Go get it and do what you want. And, and allow that dream to morph if it changes for you. See, I don't know how you got to radio, to this whole radio thing. <laughs> but whatever led you there, it wasn't, it was not a default. Right, right. It was another skill that somewhere along the road, you said, oh, I'm good at this. 
let me write, let me, let me go here. And, you know, for me, you know, uh, most folks know my story, but at the end of the day, I felt like I could have more impact in the media sphere than sitting second bassoon in somebody's orchestra, you know, so that's why I, I took that path. Well, well, not only in somebody's orchestra, but what orchestra was it going to be? <laughs> yeah. And what was the music and what would, what was the audience? And, you know, all of those questions that I had to ask myself and, and come to terms with. But as, yeah. as, as, as we start to uh, wrap up here, I wanted to back up from ACF and from AACM and just look at the musical ecosystem generally. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of chatting with uh, Rhapsody Snyder and Orbert Davis from uh, the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. And one of the questions that I asked them was, can we liberate these spaces? Can the orchestral space in general, not as the specialty thing, but in general, be as free as environments like AACM, you know, the stuff that ACF pushes forward. Do we have a chance to actually liberate the arts? We do, but they have to do it. Okay. So when, when, when you think about the name, when you say Chicago Modern Orchestra Project, I don't know what comes to mind, but I bet jazz doesn't come to mind. Sure. I bet new music doesn't come to mind. I bet, I mean, I mean, everything should come to mind because you probably don't know. So when you name a group like Chicago Jazz Philharmonic, you've put your stake in the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm just using that as as. An, yeah, please. An, yeah. An example. I don't care if the group is white or black. Um, and I shied away from pigeonholing my group. And one of the criteria for any member. You got to read. This ain't going to be no free for all. This is not a free jazz session. So <laughs> when when we are doing a full performance of Porgy and Bass, you know how hard those parts are. West Side Story. You know how hard those parts are. You have to read. We do messiahs. We do everything. But then we take the audience on that journey to the crazy side. And what I found from listening to audience members was they said, you know what? I really did not like that crazy piece, but I like everything else. So I'll be back. That's what you want. That's what you want. Because what do we do when we have a passion? You educate. You enlighten. and you engage. I don't care what the format is. I don't care if it's radio, you are enlightening, you're educating, mm -hmm. you're engaging. You're, uh, this is what we have to seek, seek to do. I did not seek to stake out any one particular claim in any one particular genre. That's hard because people want to, uh, you know, put a stake in the ground and stay there. That's never been me. And if it was, I would have never gone into classical music. I just don't think like that. Yeah. Um, so I think as long as we see ourselves as open-minded people and we see the collective planet, good or bad, the collective 
mind as something that's always hungry for knowledge, hungry for entertainment, hungry for enlightenment, um, that's when the ecosystem will change. But I have to say this, this ecosystem that we're talking about right now is an economic ecosystem. And until, and this will never happen in my lifetime, but until our government decides that it is illegal to discriminate and still operate as an orchestra, it won't change. Because many orchestras don't get funding from the government so that they don't have to observe federal discrimination laws. Mm. The EEOC laws don't apply to them because their money comes from funders and donors and those people drive the buses. You understand? The only way we got the schools segregated, uh, uh, integrated was because federal law mandated it. Mm -hmm. You ever wonder why no orchestra has to have more than the prerequisite one to keep people from shouting. I mean, and most of them don't have that. The, uh, well, I'm being kind. <laughs> okay. But it's all about economics. And I've said many times, if we took every major orchestra in this country and made all the jobs a minimum wage, we'd have all the jobs. Because people would leave like roaches. <laughs> when you cut the lights on, right? <laughs> right. Because the reason to keep these organizations close to the breast is so that they, their cohorts, their friends, and people they deem worthy make all the money. No one wants to admit that and see that. But, you know, that's math 101. And I challenge any orchestra, instead of 180000 or 200000 make you pay 30000 and see what happens. to cut it off because that goes that goes renee baker featured there with one world jam we'll have a link to that uh, performance in the description we have hammered dulcimers we have a uh, trap set folks uh, electric guitar bass all these instruments and renee baker coming in with um with a, a violin I, I hesitate i hope that's not a viola i'm sorry <laughs> uh but, but, but you know with, with with the instrument um 
and just all these worlds and aesthetics coming together in an incredible way and how her training on the Western classical side feeds into it. It's not a wall that, you know, the, the way we treat it so much in the in the industry, that classical training, that knowledge of the Western classical technique and music is not a wall and a barrier. It should be a gateway to performances like these, you know, a bridge. So incredible. She is doing some incredible work. Um, before we got into the fourth movement, I wanted to get your opinion on one of the last things that she was talking about in our conversation. Basically, she said, all these orchestras are relying on capitalism. They're relying on the money and the salaries that they're able to give these musicians. She said they would scatter like roaches if everybody lowered their salaries to $30,000 a year. So <laughs> the question I have for you is, what do you think the industry would look like when we talk about orchestras and radio stations and everything in between if the power of the dollar, if the power of capitalism was taken out? Because I know you believe in public radio. You don't believe in it enough to do it for free. So what do you think, you know, is going to happen to classical music when we finally figure out anti-capitalism? Is it going to just fall apart? If you're good at something, you should never do it for free. The mm -hmm. Joker said that in Batman, right? Yeah, sure. Okay, so you're asking me if we take... We're, we're going back to that conversation that we had before about trying to pay your bills with esteem. Yeah, but see, you're 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 trying to combat my point with Batman with with with, with a comic book. I'm saying that the <laughs> fact is that these orchestras could not keep these musicians, these these arts institutions could not keep this staff if it weren't for the systems of money and philanthropy and um and rich donors that keep all of that happening. If we figured out a way for musicians to live their free improvisatory, classical, whatever way they want to express, you know, if we figured out a way for them to be sustained to do that outside of those structures, to me, it seems like it would all fall apart. So what that leads me to is how can we trust the institutions to take us to that next level, to take us to the levels of anti-racism and anti-capitalism when they need it? They, they, they need that. You know, another thing that uh, Renee Baker was talking about in our interview and my interview with her was that so many of these institutions don't take this government money because they know they don't have the diversity to qualify for the for the for the government money. OK, mm -hmm. so again, how can we trust these institutions when they rely on racist systems, when they rely on a lack of accountability, when they rely on capitalism? I think it would all. I think it would all fall apart. And as I try to infuse anti-racism and anti-capitalism into the conversation anymore, even more, I think there are a lot of people who have something to worry about. And it, and it helps me understand and contextualize the pushback. I feel like these folks understand at the Cleveland orchestras and the New York Philharmonics and uh, L.A. Phil's and all of these places that they wouldn't have these musicians if it, if it weren't for that money. And that's the only thing keeping those musicians there. Not a love for these institutions, certainly not a love for these music directors and conductors, but the dollar. I, I follow a couple of I follow a couple of orchestra musicians who drag their own programs. Yeah. That, that, that and they, shout out to y'all. Y'all are doing that, God's work. That they play in. <laughs> and I see what you're saying about this, but um I don't I I don't feel like I can offer any sort when you when you ask my opinion 
you're coming at me from a direction that I haven't thought of, and I'm and I feel like I'm caught flat-footed. And that's and that's you why I'm, and that's why I'm that, here to introduce these thoughts because so many people, you know, you're mentioning Batman, and you know, no one, if you're good at something, you shouldn't do it for free. There are just generations worth of conditioning that go into even the need for money in the conversation in the same way that there are years and generations of conditioning that go into not thinking about why orchestras are all white and why that's okay, why arts institutions have all white staffs and why that's okay, or rather why that isn't okay. So, you know, all, all I'm trying to do is to plant new seeds because obviously you haven't imagined a anti-capitalist money-free society. So maybe you can now. Just a few opuses ago, I said, wouldn't it be great if we could do that? If we, if if getting if if achievement was the goal, but you don't pay your bills with esteem, mm-hmm. I got emails. Yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> when I didn't say that, I said, "Wouldn't it be nice if that's the way it worked?" But it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't go. You wouldn't go and give a a, an, a presentation without a paycheck at the end of it. I'll say this: some institutions, I take the highest amount of money they have. If it's for black youth, more often than not, I have done it for free. And I think that's what we're getting into. What is the work we want to do, the ways in which we want to engage the world, you know, make the world better, express ourselves artistically versus what we have to do to survive in this world that we have been given. Mm -hmm. I think capitalism even caps people's mind to what that is. If you didn't need to go to work every day to make a living because everything was provided for you, what would you do? How would you spend your time? How would you express yourselves? And that, that sort of imagination is blocked locked off by capitalism. And that's another reason why I feel like that conversation is important because I feel like there are so many people who would need days to think about an answer to that question. What would they do if they didn't need to go to a job? More times than not, for a lot of these people, it's certainly not what you're doing now. You know, it's not what they're doing now. I'm dedicated to the type of work I'm doing. And if, you know, everybody's bills were paid across society, you know, we were living in this perfect, uh, I'm hesitating, if we were living in this perfect, good version of a communist society, I'll give myself the boom there. You know, what what will we do with our time? What will we do with our energy? I feel like if you can't instantly answer that question, you're living the reality of being oppressed by capitalism. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that, in my, in my opinion, that Renee is trying to bring into the conversation. You, you, you kind of you made a face at that. Because I'm feeling the oppression of capitalism right <laughs> well, now. Well, there you go. Well, then, well, then, then, I, then I hope, you know, you can understand your active oppression and at least think about what it will look like to be liberated. I from can. That. It's just that I'm admitting to you that sometimes you bring in concepts that I don't grasp immediately and I need a little bit of help to formulate an answer <laughs> all right let's get to the fourth movement we, we began uh the downbeat with megan the stallion congratulating her again with her bachelor in science degree in health administration i wanted to get into the um fourth movement by giving her a shout out one more time with uh, an arrangement of violin feature arrangement by d sharp of her hot girl summer this tune of course also featured Nicki minaj and ty dollar sign another example of where i think we can take the genre of so-called classical music we would if we would only have the courage to do so here's a bit of d sharp performing hot boys hot girl summer excuse me <laughs> to get us into the final movement
again, D-sharp there on the violin. Do you think he gives a goddamn about who has to send him an email about dumbing down classical music or whatever? No, he doesn't. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I feel like the the folks in in the trenches of the most traditional corners of of the industry need to understand that you are the ones who have something to gain. He living he living his free life. He living his free life just as many of us have been lucky enough to live our free life. That that is available to all of us if we would and a version of that anyway, if we would all just open ourselves up to different ideas that we've never thought about before, that we've never considered before. Change isn't something that is obvious to most people. Change is something that is accepted and considered by most people. So that, that that's that's the only thing behind my asking some of these questions and presenting some of these ideas to the audience. Just giving people the the permission to imagine, the permission to to think big. You know, one of the patron saints of the South, the one and only Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. She said that when she was growing up and she told her family and friends in Sevierville, Tennessee, that she wanted to be a famous country singer, they laughed at her, but she didn't take offense because she just understood that they had never uh, been given the permission to imagine. I mean, she she uses that phrase. They they had never thought to just dream big. What if we all dreamed big? That could really manifest just the most ridiculous ideas that we can think of in our heads. Those things can come to life because we've seen that come to life in many in many ways. I mean, let's even take it to classical music. One time, this man who couldn't hardly hear, named Beethoven, sat in front of a piano and said, bum, 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 bum. how ridiculous to think that that is a melody that everyone for hundreds of years would know. That, that would be a ridiculous thought. Wouldn't it to say this little theme that I'm these four notes that I'm writing is something that the world over is going to forever know. Just watch. People would fucking laugh at that, would they not? But here we are. So what if we did that with anti-capitalism and classical music, anti-racism, all of those things? I think those things can manifest. Anyway, that's the end of my sermon. We're here in the fourth movement where we're going to um, get a little trill this week uh, for the sake of time. I'm not going to talk about Fiddler on the Roof. I saw Fiddler on the Roof this weekend. All I'm going to say is that I didn't get it. I don't under I don't what? I don't understand what I was supposed to have taken away from the story of a homogenous group of people who rejected activism among their myths, who rejected um, family members marrying people outside of their tradition as the good guys. I was triggered. I've been that black man in the store where as soon as I walk in, everybody is acting funny. And that was one of the scenes in Fiddler on the Roof where uh, the, the the father, the main character, the father, I think his third daughter marries someone outside of the religion. And the whole time they're treating him crazy. And the father even says, oh, my daughter is dead to me. It triggered me. Maybe I need to see a different production. I don't understand who I was supposed to be applauding when the curtain came down Ooh. as the good guys. Mm-hmm. So take that take that for what it is uh help me out send me an email say what you need to say all right uh but the main thing that i wanted to uh touch on this week in this final movement so um i got a message from a musician and uh they said that we really needed to talk about this so since the last time we recorded a man a musician uh with the sarasota orchestra his name is tomash kovalchik Kovalchik, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. He has been fired from the Sarasota Orchestra for being uh, racist. I mean, long story short, he has published 
uh, racist manifestos on the internet, on YouTube, on social media, sent threatening messages to musicians of color and other uh, folks in the area and even in the orchestra and has been very unapologetic about it. Last week, you know, we talked about the implications of getting fired from a job, being news, being something that folks talk about, especially Mm -hmm. considering my proximity to that. This is something that I believe is important to talk about because I think the fact that folks like, and this isn't the first story like this, but the fact that folks like this exist in orchestras, exist in classical institutions, you know, the fact that there is something called slip disc where the racists gather, even in the field of classical music, to shit on things and, and have problematic languages. You know, all of this to me speaks to the change that needs to happen in the field, in the industry of Western classical music. From my perspective, and I'm going to say this and I want you to respond, but to, you know, to, if I'm reaching, if I'm talking crazy, if I'm exaggerating using hyperbole, when we look at these orchestras as, as the demographics are with the musicians, okay, as, a, as it applies to the vast majority of orchestras around the world, much less the United States, when we look at the way programming from arts institutions has looked, the way it has centered white male Eurocentricity, would a white supremacist have any reason to not feel at home in those structures and in those systems? This is not someone who got a job and a week later they found out that he was doing all these crazy things so he had to get out. His feelings, his white supremacist nature was being affirmed by his surroundings. And I know it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to consider classical music a bastion of white supremacy, but that's something that, mm-hmm. you know, we dug into in the early days of David, of Norville. David Norville, shout out to David Norville, you know, described classical music as the last place where white supremacy goes unchallenged. I think the well, existence starting, of this it? person is evidence of that. Right. Is our classical institutions as they exist now, not as we want them to be in the future, but as they exist now, and certainly as they have existed for the past hundred years here in the United States, not a safe, affirmative place for people who center white supremacy. Mm. Uh, I think it's definitely starting to happen. If you think about, uh, was it earlier this year or late last year, there was uh, the woman that played trombone in Austin was let go for similar issues. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that um, uh, the the Met had a a James Levine uh, issue that was covered for years decades and the untold secrets of that and how the industry kept him right. safe and you know? you know and and that conversation is happening that uh, that it was willfully hidden and i i think now that there are more and more receipts uh it's getting easier and easier to challenge these things yeah and you're probably going to start seeing it more often than not and probably in an organization that you listen to and enjoy so if you uh live in sarasota or anywhere in the area um i have been advised to send out a warning i mean there there is a white supremacist in our midst and he has been dismissed from the sarasota orchestra who knows 
where he will land and, and where his feelings within the industry will be affirmed because I personally have no reason to believe that he will not find a space in the industry considering the way that we treat the aesthetics of music and the way that we look at programming and the way that we don't think it's a big deal that so many of these institutions are not diverse at all all white completely white you know so they're being they're being affirmed in this industry and we need to face that fact if we're going to move forward i was looking for the quote while you were uh, talking i couldn't find it but um malcolm x said in essence racism only exists where there's a threat so you brought up that trombone player we're talking about uh this violinist uh tomash all of the many people we can there was someone in detroit that uh, they had to dismiss in, mm. in the viola section. They These people didn't change. These people didn't become white supremacists. These people didn't become racist. Their racism was being challenged by some of the uh, recent conversations of EDI and classical music, diverse hiring and those things. So these folks are in our midst and they have been kept safe by the industry based on the way that we have approached programming and hiring and all of these things that I've already named. So, you know, as, as, as we wrap up this week, I just hope everyone will think about that. If you are in an orchestra, if you work for an arts institution, if you give money or enjoy what an arts institution puts out there, consider the inherent white supremacy of it and consider the fact that white supremacists not only exist in it, but are affirmed in it. If you don't want to continue to affirm white supremacy, there has to be some push that you're doing when it comes to programming, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to the conversations that are happening, when it comes to community engagement, audience development, all of these things that change challenge the white supremacists that are in our midst. This man in the Sarasota Orchestra isn't the only one. There will be many more, but we can't root them out until we start to challenge the safety net that has been built around them through the tradition of Western classical music here in the United States. Have a great week, everyone. I'll see you next week.